The Niebuhr Brothers Strike Back, 50 Years Later. You're listening to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Road Niebuhr. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-host Zach Narrison. Aaron still has off, you know, PhD students. Well, I want to let you all in on where we are going ahead. In our next episode, uh, we'll be speaking with Kevin Carnahan and David True, uh, the editors of the new work Paradoxical Virtue. After that, we'll be, God help us, moderating a debate between Stanley Hauerwas and Gary Dorian. And then we'll be interviewing Andrew Basevich fitting, fittingly on the week of Independence Day as we'll be, be beginning our series on the irony of American history. But joining us today is Helen Gaston, a Niebuhr scholar and lecturer on American religious history and ethics at Harvard Divinity School. Helen received her BA in religious studies from Brown University and her PhD in US history from UC Berkeley, a former president of the Niebuhr Society. She has written extensively about both Niebuhr brothers, especially Reinhold, who figured prominently in her 2019 book, Imagining Judeo-Christian America, Religion, Secularism, and the Redefinition of Democracy. Helen is currently at work on a new book project that will be of particular interest to our listeners. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Now, for our listeners, this is an interview and a book I have been plugging on several shows leading up to today, not least uh, in our conversation with Dr. Scott Paith. If you, the listener, wish, you can go back to that episode and listen first. It was on the Niebuhr brothers, same general topic for today, but perhaps that episode with Paith could uh, could serve more as a launching point uh, for today's discussion. And to the listener, uh, no, we do not have a copy of the forthcoming book of Helen. We're not that special. And also, she's not even done yet. She emphasized to us that this is a big project. So we're discussing a book nobody has read and is not even completely written yet. That's how cutting edge we are here at the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. <laughs> so then how are we going to do this? Well, Dr. Gaston has generously shared with us an article she wrote and published in 2014 that she says will help orient us towards her upcoming work. The article was published in the Harvard Theological Review and is called A Bad Kind of Magic, The Niebuhr Brothers on Utilitarian Christianity, and the defense of democracy. Spicy title. That's a spicy title. Bad kind of magic. Now, how this will go down is that Zach and I have read this article and some others that she sent, and we have prepared some questions for Helen. So we'll just go back and forth between Zach and I until about an hour, and then we'll wrap up. So Zach, you want to get us going with the first question? Yeah, I guess. And before we get into the article um, and kind of break that down, um, uh, I understand that you've titled your new book about the Niebuhr brothers, Prophets of Pluralism, What the Niebuhr Brothers Can Teach Us About Religion and Democracy Today. What can you tell us about the contours of the project? Yes, no, thank you. Um, so I'm currently working on a tandem biography of Reinhold and H. Richard Niebuhr, 
Um, and I know we'll get a chance to talk more about the project's content and how it came to be, but let me just start by telling you a little bit about its structure. The book is divided into two parts with the first seven chapters on the history of the Niebuhr brothers' lives and relation, um, and the second seven chapters on the ethical implications of their work. The historical first part of the manuscript moves chronologically from 1919 to Reinhold's death in 1971, um, whereas the ethical second part is organized thematically. Um, most of the courses I've taught at HDS in recent memory have something to do with the relationship between history and ethics. Um, and so the book structure is really designed to help me explore that. Now, uh, why, why, uh, Helen, why did you decide to write about the Niebuhr brothers together? I asked this question similar, you know, to, to Scott Paith. I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the decision to do that has ultimately been um, kind of reinforced by a lot of different things. I mean, I um, I guess the biggest one, though, is is the way that these brothers get received in the classroom. I've had the pleasure at HDS on numerous occasions of teaching courses that um, look at the two and the relationship between the two. And I think one of the things that becomes clear when you teach the Niebuhr brothers in tandem is that there's a just a remarkable kind of way that their thought becomes, I mean, people often think of Reinhold Niebuhr as someone who helps us think our way around complex problems and come at them from different perspectives. That sort of perspectival character of Niebuhr's thought is something that I hear again and again um, from scholars and public commentators on Niebuhr. Um, but H. Richard Niebuhr, when you put H. Richard into the conversation, suddenly you have like a jewel that's faceted with a million more facets. You know, it becomes a more complex thing even then because you're able to ask yourself, as many of my students do, you know, which is my favorite neighbor brother and why? And then you watch them through the source of course of the semester, you know, becoming convinced that the one that they liked at the outset, they now hate and that they're fascinated <laughs> with the other one or that they, by the end, that they're done with both of them or fascinated by both of them. Um, and what I say to students is just that no matter what you end up thinking about these brothers and the relative merits of the positions that they take, you will come out of this course a better thinker, a sharper thinker than you were when you came in. So that this is, you know, has a sort of form of like kind of almost like intellectual calisthenics, like your brain will be sharper. I love this because you, I am becoming more and more convinced of how little we can actually know about Reinhold without knowing about Richard. And this yeah. relationship and uh, it, it kind of really started off with that interview with Paith. But what you have here, it really tells me that ne Reinhold is clearly not just in a vacuum. And we always make the mistake in here of like of calling Reinhold Niebuhr. But maybe when we say Niebuhr, we should be saying it should be including both of them uh, a little bit. So th but there, that's not to say there isn't disagreement. That's actually where Reinhold is in the disagreement where that shapes a lot of what where Reinhold goes in both his oppositions and and his uh, accordance with with Richard. Yes, so I think that's absolutely true. And like, honestly, the the Niebuhr Society, you know, as a result, I mean, being part of the Niebuhr Society was one thing that got me thinking about this in broader strokes, because, of course, when they talk about the Niebuhr legacy, they're talking about the many talented members of the Niebuhr family. Yeah. Right. And, and broader, even broader strokes than just the relationship between the brothers. And, you know, that's something to consider in terms of the podcast. You know, what is your purview? Yeah. Like. You know, oh my gosh, that's a great that that's a great point. We maybe we should be broadening this because I just found out not long ago that his sister, that their sister, was a in her own right a very serious scholar of education. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, she um, wrote an amazing book called The One Story, which was used um, as a sort of teaching bible um, widely 
um, in her day and is a, a really beautiful. It has like woodcuts and I mean, it's a beautiful book. Um, is that, is that yeah. still being read today? In well, I mean, it's being read in, by my kids, but I don't know about other people's. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, yeah, it's um, it's definitely, it's out there and it's fascinating. I mean, you know, talk about sources that you can use in interesting ways in the classroom. Yeah. yeah. What, a, what a crazy wow. family. What a wow. cool family. How did you first uh, get interested in Randall Niebuhr? You know, it's really an interesting story. Um, I discovered... Um, when working on the Niebuhr documentary that I was not the first person or not the only person in that cadre of folks who had actually been introduced to Niebuhr as like a teenager by a parent. Um, and for me, the introduction came from my father who had gotten a scholarship to Duke Divinity School and then decided actually to become a family lawyer. So using similar kinds of like counseling um, tactics in, you know, a different vein, right? I think there's a very pastoral quality about trying to help people settle their differences. And of course, good lawyers are trying to help people settle their differences oh. out of court. <laughs> yeah. um, but he had gone to Duke and had this remarkable memory for pretty much everything he'd ever read during his time at Duke. Um, and so growing up, I found that, you know, as someone who was inclined toward theology, philosophy, religion, there weren't a lot of, you know, ways to do philosophy in high schools. We still have that problem in this country. Um, and as a result, I found that I was having these incredibly rich conversations with my dad about all of these different theologians and ethicists, um, and in many respects, actually learned intellectual history and philosophy, like through theology, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely remember hearing about Niebuhr and hearing about all these other characters, and I found that there was something weird about the way that Niebuhr stuck in my brain. Like the Niebuhr was somehow, like Niebuhr's perspectives, particularly the premises of moral man and immoral society, like they had this weird capacity to explain what I was seeing in high school. I mean, think about applying that to like the bullying dynamics that you see in most American high schools where someone is your friend until they're running with their pack and then suddenly they pretend they don't know you, right? I mean, it was just, it was uncanny. And I was just like, wow, you know, I was really impressed <laughs> that somebody yeah. had come up with a philosophy or a position on these questions that just had so much ability to tell me about the world I was living in. And I think in hindsight, that some of that, I mean, that has been really profound for me, like that sort of sense of, wow, this has explanatory power. I think, I mean, in hindsight, when I look back, I realize that the book I'm writing now is very much the sort of culmination of something that's been with me for a long time, which is an interest not just in history, but in what history means in the present, yeah. right? It's that, it's that question, you know, it's just really at the sort of, so I'm really excited to be writing it because I feel like it's the sort of thing that is going to combine my love of history with this sort of burning sense about social ethics and questions about politics that are unfolding are all around us. You know, it's amazing that, um, so we knew ahead of time through Matt Anderson that you got, that you both um, correspond with one another. And it makes total sense because he's really into reception of Niebuhr. Yep. And, uh, and that seems like that would be totally uh, something that would bring you two together. Oh, definitely. Yes. I mean, actually, the Niebuhr circles are small enough that I correspond with many, many of your guests. <laughs> and But I mean, I, you know, I've discovered um, that just this podcast is such an interesting place to feel. I mean, you feel like you're checking in with old friends or hearing what people are thinking about. So, I mean, Good. I'm really grateful for that. It's a it's a That's neat awesome. thing to be able to take a little time out and feel like you've had some time with a friend that might otherwise be too busy to, to sit down <laughs> the conversation. That's, oh. a, that's the whole point. That's what we wanted to do. Yeah, that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah, it is. Now, uh, my next question is, uh, what role, so you told us a little bit how, how you got into Niebuhr, but what role did Niebuhr play, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr play in your first book, Imagining Judeo-Christian America? 
And how does the story you tell there about the genesis and trajectory of Judeo-Christian, which is an interesting, interesting term. I just took our uh, uh, confirmation kids to a Jewish temple this week. And and this is a topic that me and the rabbi somehow got off on. But um, but how how does the story you tell there uh, about the genesis and trajectory of that term or, you know, the idea of Judeo-Christian discourse relate to your new project on the Niebuhr brothers? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the funny thing that I've never really said in any other context, but I will say it to you all, um, is that if you read my first book, um, Imagining Judeo-Christian America, like one of the things that is true is that Niebuhr is very well represented on the pages of that book, just as figures like John Courtney Murray, Will Herberg, like other major thinkers from this period are. Um, and I've learned those thinkers in tandem with one another, you know, so they are like sort of part of each other's, you know, they're conversation partners to one another. And, and that's some part of how I'm able to get, you know, really crisp, precise um, distinctions, you know, about what they're each doing and where the limits of those things are, because they're working them out in relation to one another. Um, but the book, to a certain extent, Niebuhr forms the backbone, right, of imagining Judeo-Christian America, because he's essentially on the fence between the sort of group of Judeo-Christian, what I term Judeo-Christian pluralists, and Judeo-Christian exceptionalists. And this is, I don't really view this so much as an ideal types frame as a, a spectrum, right? Where you've got folks who are essentially arguing that the term Judeo-Christian means something akin to Jews, Christians, dot, 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 right? Mm -hmm. As an, an affirmation of religious diversity that is potentially unfolding in history as you, you know, as you move forward and as the um, country grows more diverse in the wake of the Hart-Seller Act, you know, and so the, the promise there being the idea that to call this country a Judeo-Christian nation is about that promise of a sort of ever-expanding we, right? Whereas exceptionalists are much more committed to the idea that there is something unique, right, about what Protestantism, Catholicism, and Judaism bring to our understanding of democracy in an American yeah. context, and that that has limits, right, in terms of who can adequately defend it and which traditions are seen as sort of more historically inputting to it, hmm. right? And so that becomes, I mean, you can see then how questions about anxieties about interfaith relations, moral relativism, indifferentism, um, you know, start to well up in a, in a setting like that where what's being debated fundamentally is what is the relationship between democracy and religion in an age of totalitarianism. Yeah. And yeah. so the reason that Niebuhr forms the backbone is that Niebuhr is someone who is essentially straddling the fence. Love it. Between the exceptionalists and the pluralists, like standing on the fence. Hmm. Right. And in that sense, the entire scheme that I've set up there is built around tensions within Niebuhr's thought that I think map onto the wider conversation that's being had at the time. It's amazing how he keeps finding that place. Um, and it's amazing how something that struck me about, you know, the way that Dorian talks about him is kind of this man between worlds himself. Um, he's kind of uh, cast between the German and the English speaking world. He's kind of cast between the parochial, uh, you know, uh, rural life of Missouri and uh, the bustling cities of Detroit and New York. And uh, it's interesting to see how those two worlds actually create kind of uh, tension that follows him into his thought. 
Um, and it's almost like he's been negotiating attention his entire life. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting. Yes. No, I think that's, I think that actually speaks to one of the questions that always comes up when you talk with other folks who are interested in the Niebuhr legacy and the Niebuhr brothers, which is just in particular, why Reinhold Niebuhr's thought has had so much staying power. Like what explains the, the fact that someone like me can say, oh, I was exposed to this at 14 or 15 years old and it just never left my brain. That's wild. That's amazing. <laughs> 14 or 15 is pretty crazy. Uh, I know that, like, I didn't get into them until like probably 20, 21. Mm. But uh, yeah, 14, 15. That's great. So tell us about this upcoming work, Helen. I, I hear you have some hot gauze on the Niebuhr bros for us today <laughs> that maybe uh, you hit the researcher's jackpot. I understand you can't get in into too much depth with those correspondences, but you've given us this article, Bad Kind of Magic, uh, in preparation of this. But give us a general look at the scope of this thing, and how does this article that you've given us relate to that, to your upcoming work? Right. Well, let me just say, um, you know, that that one of the things that happened for me in the process, like the order in which these things got written um, is sort of off kilter. And so I can explain the way that they converge, uh, probably easiest by talking about the order in which they were produced. Mm. Um, the piece on the the piece I wrote for the Journal of American History on um, Niebuhr's relationship with Will Herberg and William F. Buckley, that was the first piece, and it was published in 2013 and came straight out of my thesis. And it was something that essentially was arguing that it argued basically that Reinhold Niebuhr was being that Will Herberg was trying to drag Reinhold Niebuhr sort of into the conservative camp in the early 50s mm. because he understood. He thought Niebuhr was being hypocritical, essentially. He thought that the logical implication of the claim that democracy requires religion or that it requires Judeo-Christian or prophetic faith is that Protestants, Catholics, and Jews of a certain temper should be a sort of vanguard. Like Herbert was coming out of mm -hmm. a Marxist frame. And like for him, there was this really strong sort of sense that only people who really understood these traditions deep, deeply could be reliable defenders of democracy. And he believed that that was the logical implication of Niebuhr's thought, right? And so this is happening at a moment where Niebuhr has just published a book in the irony of American history that has a very Cold War character about it, right? I mean, he, but, but part of the problem then is that his health over these years has been declining, right? So by the late forties, he's on the verge of a major heart attack, you know, or a really major stroke, I mean. Yeah. Um, and, you know, his health is not the best. And so he ends up writing this manuscript, The Irony of American History, it come, it's published, and then he has a stroke that is very debilitating. And, you know, to a certain extent, the stroke is debilitating enough that he's really um, trying to almost conceal from people exactly how debilitating because he's mm. trying to get the time to recover from it and kind of bounce back as best he can. Um, and that never really fully happens. I mean, he is really, you know, still very clearly impaired by the stroke throughout the rest of his life. Um, but what I would say is that my, my professional sense became in the process of writing that article that, that Niebuhr for the first time potentially in his entire life in the late forties and early fifties, is no longer able to really understand what is unfolding. Like he basically misjudges the Cold War. He doesn't understand like what exactly the dynamics are there, right? And so he ends up writing in a, the irony of American history, some things that read to particularly his earlier liberal and Marxist you know, socialist supporters as just insane in the context of the unfolding Cold War, where there is so much um, you know, concern about the possibility that people on the left and even like mainstream liberals are, um, you know, like 
communists, right? I mean, I mean, it's becoming like a, a very, very um, antagonistic environment for some of his earlier allies. And so, you know, can imagine like writing a book like that and for the first time in your life or, you know, having like large swaths of your readership responds just with indignance and like, my gosh, how could you possibly see this this way? But then being trapped inside a stroke ridden body where you can't very easily correct or tack like with the criticism that you're getting. Mm. Right. I mean, I think that I mean, that was the sort of sense that I had. And so, you know, and it was supported by some of the evidence that I put together for that particular article. And so part of what I think Niebuhr ends up doing and the sort of a classical example of this from his corpus is the book Pious and Secular America. Mm. Right. Is actually weighing in on the, the question of, well, you know, if we are all believers in pluralism and if Judeo-Christian exceptionalists just believe in a different kind of pluralism that's sort of more tightly bounded than Judeo-Christian pluralists with their more expansive sort of sense of what might be included, then what do we do about like secularists? Like who are they? Like who are, you know, any, who are groups that are, that are outside of the, of the frame that we would talk about as religious pluralism? Right. And so the Niebuhr brothers, you know, via Tillich and various others, they're interested in this question. What are political religions? Why are they dangerous? Hmm. Right. I mean, they're interested in this question of like, what is the relationship between claims about pluralism and the danger or threat of secularism? Right. And so he had thought about the pluralism part more than he had thought about the secularism part. And now he was left with a situation where it looked like he was teaming up with conservatives in a sort of, you know, desire to root out people on the left who were themselves Marxist, secularists, communists, right? I mean, people that he had once been allied with as a Christian socialist, right? And even in some cases, secular liberals who in this time were considered a threat to democracy if they were not believers in a tradition, right? So in other words, how can you fight godless communism if you are yourself godless? The irony here, of course, is that Niebuhr was actively being investigated by the FBI during yes. McCarthyism. That's right. Um, it, it is an irony. I mean, the <laughs> yeah, no, it's really it's, it's fascinating. I, I mean, I do think he was probably very quick to figure out some of why, you know, some of the miscommunications, but like he was off of his game, let's just say, <laughs> right in the late 40s and the early 50s. And so, you know, when you see him like off his game and then trying to recover the position that he means to take, right, you watch him kind of threading the needle between the kinds of almost pragmatist sounding accounts of moral fallibilism in a book like The Children of Light and the Children of Darkness, right? And these claims that democracy requires religion in some sense, right? In this sort of vein of, you know, rejecting the stricter definitions of church-state separation in the uh -huh. Everton and Cullen cases, that kind of thing, right? And so you see him in the mid to late fifties, you know, coming, trying to recover from the stroke and trying to thread the needle there, right? I'm, I'm gonna ask an unanswerable question. But I just want to get your thoughts on it. Um, a softball, you know. A softball, right. <laughs> yeah, excellent. It comes up every now and again on this podcast in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of how much we can write off post-stroke Niebuhr and the things that he, some of his latter-day uh, statements regarding his earlier work. Right. How much of that should we take as gospel? Because he obviously has the, the vantage point of time. Yeah. But he, at the same time, has, and it, interestingly, he he writes an article about about uh, maturity and um, and childlikeness in uh, in Beyond Tragedy that goes through this irony. Gosh, there's too many ironies here. Uh, which which Niebuhr, and and this is definitely unanswerable. But how much? I mean, it's 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 the question in the middle of the discussion. How much 
was Niebuhr really affected by his stroke? Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating question, and it's one that I've thought about quite a lot. And I think there's sort of two people that I would cite as being, you know, particularly helpful with me on it. I mean, the first is Richard Fox, whose work, you know, has just been crucially, I mean, to anyone who does close historical work on Niebuhr, it's just absolutely um, critical to really know Fox's work backward and forward. And I'm really indebted to um, Richard for um, the incredible book that he wrote. I think that one of the things that has always struck me as interesting about that book is how it's weighted. I mean, essentially, Post-Stroke Niebuhr is a very sort of small series of chapters <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in that book. And some of that I've always attributed to Fox's fascination with the earlier Niebuhr, also just the exhaustion that always comes with books of that size and magnitude. Um, but, you know, there there's definitely reason to look at the post-Stroke Niebuhr carefully. I mean, one of the reasons is that if you look at the sort of actual number of things published, almost half of Niebuhr's corpus comes out post-1950. Yeah. Um, another sort of reference point for me, actually, is this book, Man's Nature and His Communities, um, which Gary Dorian um, assigns, I think, and, you know, I've had the pleasure, I mean, not Gary Dorian, I'm sorry, um, E.J. Dion assigns in, in his classes. I've had the pleasure of teaching with E.J. on a couple of different occasions. Um, and that is a book that is easy, like many other of Niebuhr's writings, to um, maybe just say, oh, well, you know, it's a rehash or it's, you know, there's, if you want the sort of original formulation of a certain idea, you should go to this place. But one of the things that is remarkable about that book is the way that it confirms something that I have, you know, really tried to take to heart in, in the book I'm currently writing, Prophets of Pluralism, which is the idea that that Niebuhr is um, really committed, right, to trying to ask questions about what it means to live in a diverse democracy and in a theologically diverse setting, right? And some of that is um, really borne out by Elizabeth Sifton's book, right, about the serenity prayer, which turns out to be something more like a memoir, right? And she talks a lot about the robustness of the kind of cadre of like emigre theologians and intellectuals that are, you know, part of the world that she's growing up in, in the 30s and 40s. Um, And, you know, there's a, I mean, you know, she's very clear on the fact that many of these people are potentially anti-religious or that they understand religion in ways more akin to Paul Tillich than Billy Graham, let's say, <laughs> right? right. Um, but there's a huge number of like Christian socialists and um, folks with progressive and left, you know, leaning um, inclinations there and just a kind of welter of ways of thinking about the world. I mean, um, so I think man's nature and his communities, like reading that book really confirmed for me that that, that is actually the way that Niebuhr's telling his own story in the early 60s, when he finally has time to rest enough. I mean, he retired from Union in 1960. And so there's a way in which that book doesn't claim to be a memoir, but is kind of a memoir in the sense that Elizabeth Sifton's book on the Serenity Prayer is also. And it's remarkable how sort of stories about pluralism, negotiating difference, like are so central to the way both of those um, storylines run. Interesting. You know, one of the things I really appreciate um, in, in, in trying to honor Niebuhr, I always am looking for somebody who can offer a very good critique of him. And I was messaging with Cliff last night, actually, as I was reading this. And I feel like this in here, you offer two or several critiques of Niebuhr from his brother. And they they really land really well. Um, and it, it really becomes clear just how much he saw his brother, uh, even mm-hmm. though, you know, 
as like a, a barometer of sorts for him, um, for himself. Because I'm always trying to look like, who is it that that Niebuhr is looking to? Who is it that makes him self-conscious? Like you write that 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 mm-hmm. in their correspondence, he talks about being self-conscious about how his brother might respond. And you, there was this one critique that you highlight from H. Richard that I just thought was so good. And I was wondering if you could expand on it a little bit because I, it, 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 it captured for me something that, that's just been, every time I read Niebuhr, I, I, I love reading him, but there's just this one aspect and I, I feel like you highlight it really well. You said, um, in a thinly veiled critique of Reinhold's position, H. Richard took issue with those he termed die-theists who believed that the war requires a double response of contrition for common sin and of confident assertion of the relative righteousness or or rightness of democracy in opposition to totalitarianism. According to H. Richard, this dualism of double response makes us double-minded men, unstable in all of our ways. Die theists who have two gods, the Father of Jesus Christ and our country, or him and democracy, or him and peace. Democracy and peace are surely values of a higher order, if they are under God. He added, but as rivals of God, they are betrayers of, of life. Do you, do you feel like that's a, a an accurate, I mean, for me, that just, it, it lands so well. It, it's this really well-formed critique of Reinhold Niebuhr, because I feel like I get the sense that he almost wants us to live in this, this duality. You know, he wants us to live in this kind of like, hey, we need to act in history, but we need to always act recognizing that, um, we have to we have to repent along the way for the ways that we're gonna fail. I know that was a long-winded question. Yeah, no. I mean, it's so interesting, like to hear kind of what resonates with you. I mean, I think, you know, maybe the best way to tackle that question is just to say that I mean, <laughs> when I talk especially with like, you know, folks that haven't been in this particular line of work for a long time, I realize how indebted I am to certain of the scholars. Um, that have like put these questions on the table um, when that passage in particular like always reminds me of John Diefenthaler's work on H. Richard Niebuhr we have a biography of H. Richard that John wrote which is really excellent and he also um, put out a, a collection an edited collection of um, H. Richard's works in the last 10 years that kind of came out coterminously with Elizabeth Sifton's um, Library of America volume and those two are just remarkably helpful for teaching um, and but also for all of us who are trying to get to know these brothers better or writing or thinking about them but John really emphasizes that particular sort of passage about Dithius. Um, And I guess the other thing I would say is that, I mean, in a broader way, like one of the biggest gifts that Gary Dorian, um, I think, has given us in terms of the way that his scholarship works is permission to think our way robustly, aggressively around all sides of the Niebuhr legacy, to be critical in every turn, right? To think deeply about, and this some of this comes out of the engagement that Gary Dorian has um, with um, the neocons, right? I mean, the, you know, the, I mean, he's really, but, but at every turn, there's just a liveliness and a, um, about Gary's, I mean, I think the bigger reason why we have so many wonderful perspectives on Niebuhr's thought from Gary is just that there's no one else that understands the historical landscape with the kind of nuance and breadth. Um, but I guess, you know, that's like for a young scholar, it's really important to have others around you who talk about how to write critically about characters that you admire and how to pay attention to the critical, you know, engagements that these um, characters, that these actors are having with one another, right? Because, I mean, so much of what intellectuals do, right, is agree, agree, agree until they disagree. I mean, that's, you know, these folks are doing political theory. These folks are, you know, working out like the, the line between theology and ethics by trying to carve out their various spaces in relation to one another. And so you can't get like better practice for understanding like what the sort of 
like questions are that bound those different delineations, right? Than to watch people just hashing that out with one another, yeah. right? And I think, yeah. um, you know, so that to me is, you know, one thing that comes to mind. It's so weird too. I mean, it's just wonderful that you all took the time, you know, to engage this closely. I mean, I think it, it probably bears saying at this point before we get too much into what's going on in the letters, and I don't think this is necessarily true of that particular passage, but the bad magic piece is essentially about my experience in 2008. I mean, it's framed by an experience I had in 2008 of going into the Harvard University, um, Harvard Divinity School archives um, upon noticing that a new deposit of papers um, from Dick Niebuhr, who was the son of H. Richard and taught for years at HDS, um, had deposited. Um, and second deposits can sometimes be, you know, the moment where a family you know, realizes, oh my gosh, we had two boxes in storage we didn't realize, or they collect together materials that have been scattered, um, you know, just in the process of sorting things. Um, but sometimes there are things that a family or that an individual wants embargoed, right? Not by a library, but but by the by by their family members. Um, and so I and I didn't really kind of know that at the time, but I did have this sense that I was very curious because I had done work with the H. Richard Niebuhr papers at HDS and I, you know, had seen the second deposit go in. And so uh, it was right after the birth, actually, of my first child, and I was, you know, I was basically like kind of hobbled into the archive, <laughs> not long after, you know, and snuck away from the newborn to like try to get in there and see, yeah, like what I would find. And I mean, it was really incredible because, of course, I had read John Diefenthaler's book, and I knew from having read it on H. Richard Niebuhr that that H. Richard was widely known to have burned his correspondence with Reinhold. Uh -huh. and, and I think, you know, the question of why probably as much an effort to protect their mutual privacy, right, as anything else. Um, but here was a set of letters that, you know, every single one of which, there was not a single one that was like what we would call sort of purely personal hmm. back and forth. They were all letters that had some kind of you know, consequential intellectual bone of contention surrounded sometimes by other kinds of, you know, personal banter with one another about differences and similarities between them. And so this, this piece in particular, I mean, what I found was what, what looked to me almost like a blueprint for understanding not only like the incredible closeness of these two brothers and how, you know, as you rightly say, like Reinhold, you know, one of the ways that he handled the fame and the pressures of the kind of career that he had was to care very little about what most other people thought, but boy, mm -hmm. did he care about what H. Richard thought. And so if you actually take a look, I mean, we have this idea that the only time the brothers talked to one another directly was in their debate over the Manchuria crisis in 1931. But with the help of these letters, I started thinking, wait a second, they're talking to each other here and they're talking to each other here. And I started noticing all these different settings where they seemed to be in dialogue with one another, including around questions related to some of their major books. And then when I started watching how H. Richard was responding and how Reinhold was responding to various kinds of critical, but particularly Reinhold, like how he's responding to H. Richard's critiques, mm -hmm. right? You're basically watching the development of a kind of intertwined set of projects, one by a theologian who identifies primarily as a theologian and says, the question is, where is God's action in the world, right? And the other by an ethicist, he says, you know, what is human nature and what should we do? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So there wasn't like an Indiana Jones type story that went, <laughs> in, that went into finding these? 
Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> depends. No, that's, uh, actually, now, there's you know, a lot of intrigue. There. I mean, it wasn't, you know, like, let's say this. It wasn't as like electrifying as the moment when I was researching the piece on um, Herberg, Buckley and Niebuhr, where I found like a Frasco document that said like secret and confidential at the top of the page. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's, cool. that's awesome. Oh yeah, I mean, I didn't ask you all to read that article, but I tell you, there's some stuff in there like that. Are, I mean, if you want to see more like Indiana Jones level finds, like check out the um, the Cold War romance of religious authenticity, which is oh, that man. 2013. Oh, I mean, Buckley and Herberg, their correspondence with each other is worth the price of admission alone. But there's like lots of interesting stuff in there that will just blow your mind. I mean, well, this is an intriguing story in itself because it was so like many people understood or thought they understood that Richard burned these. Right. Um, but, but you know, it's exist. funny, right? Like what it tells me is that he cared so deeply about the character and quality of the conversation he was having with his brother. Mm. Right. He knew that Reinhold was listening really closely to everything he said. Like, can you imagine if you had like the last remaining evidence, you'd winnowed out all of the sort of ephemera and things that, that just seemed petty or that weren't really related to the substantive core of the things that you cared most about in your conversation with someone. But like, you know, when you get to that moment where you're like, am I going to be consistent and destroy mm -hmm. these things? Or does there need to be some kind of record of this conversation? Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I would, I have no idea, right? Um, but I would suspect that there's got to be a pretty like strong, I mean, because the story of your relationship with your brother is also the story of yourself and your life's work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's so it, tough. I, I know that Jeremy said how much he blushed looking at he and uh, uh, Reinhold and Ursula's letters back and forth and, you know, like deeply intimate stuff going back and forth. But yeah, I guess that there is more irony here. There, there's there's an irony of the ethics of unearthing these, but uh, that's interesting. Go ahead. Well, you could almost say that Niebuhr is a, he he comes across as more of a bit of a like a he's a bit of a voyeurist when it comes to his own personal thoughts. You know what I mean? Like his he's much <laughs> like he 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 takes which diary. are you saying? H. Richard or Reinhold? Right, Reinhold. Sorry. Yeah. He, when, when he you know when he writes his diary, one of my obviously my favorite. Yeah, his, my favorite book by him is uh, Leaves from the Notebook of a Tame Cynic. And, um, it, you know, he's very, he's very forthcoming with like his personal thoughts. He just kind of says like, you know, and H. Richard, it definitely, you can tell from this, like he said, burning the, or thinking he had burned the letters, like very uh, much more concerned about, um, like those are personal conversations where it seems like Niebuhr is much more, uh, I mean, sorry, Reinhold is much more, uh, hey, yeah, this is what we were thinking about. Now, you start this article off with something with a bang, pretty earth shattering in the Niebuhr world. So there was a particular posture and you went into this a little bit when you were talking about Niebuhr writing post-stroke, but there was a particular posture towards democracy Niebuhr took at the beginning of the Cold War, whereupon which uh, previously all kinds of Niebuhr scholars from Daniel Rice to Richard Fox could only speculate, but you actually seem to found to have found a clear answer. Uh, could you could you tell us about that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think the key here is um, that essentially the, the letters show that Niebuhr is essentially taking a critique that his brother has made against him and then sort of turning it outward. Hmm. And that shows, I think, a very kind of 
the very sort of strong sense in which um, he is internalizing the things he's, his brother is saying. He's tacking with his brother's critiques. He's seeing the critiques made to him in the wider world. He's grappling in a very deep way. Um, um, and it's this claim about making a religion of democracy, yeah. right? So the he writes in an article, the new idolatry in the U.S. may be a blind, uncritical worship of democracy. And this is, you know, this is a piece called Democracy as a Religion, right? And it turns out that the, the letters basically show that H. Richard is saying this to him about books okay. like The Children of Light and Children of Darkness, right? They're having this, he's, a, he's much more attuned to the dangers right, of this yeah. kind of defense of democracy, right, than, than we really knew clearly from the writings that existed before. Um, and so it sets up this kind of fascinating... Um, and whereas whereas before, scholars had thought that maybe he was responding to liberals. Dewey, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dewey. Um, people types. like that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's his brother all along. Um, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so funny, too, because if you think about a book like, you know, like the irony of american history the evil of the foe is the evil in the self yeah right <laughs> i mean it's hard to like think about a claim like that made in 1952 in the same way after you see this kind of like hall of mirrors quality would it be fair to i'm sure it'd be overly simplified to think of it this way but is niebuhr in many ways a synthesis between his brother's orthodoxy on the right and the liberalism that he's that he feels still akin with on the left. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think I would take it out of a political, like a purely political frame, um, probably, and just say, I mean, I think the thing that has become sort of clearest to me about these brothers is that when I'm thinking about Reinhold in particular, I mean, I take very seriously the fact that someone like a Cornel West, you know, calls a book like Moral Man and Immoral Society the founding text of Christian social ethics. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is a person who is carving out a terrain for ethics. Right. And as a result, he's asking a lot of questions about who human beings are. What should human beings do? Well, how does that look from the standpoint of H. Richard? He's a theologian. Yeah. Yeah. This question, all those questions are idolatrous, frankly. Like, where's God's action in the world? How do we know? How should, how should we respond? Right. Mm -hmm. He has a totally different set of questions by virtue of his identity as a theologian. Right. And so there's a way in which the questions themselves, like that gulf is the thing that they're trying to negotiate. But at a moment where Christian social ethics is, you know, a thing that is being made. Yeah. Right. I think the same thing needs to be said about um, a book like The Social Sources of Denominationalism. I mean, H. Richard is not just like one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. He's also the founder of American sociology of religion. Right. Right. Yeah. And why is he the founder? He's the founder because he got access, I mean, to a certain extent, because of his familiarity with Trelch. He was writing a thesis on Trelch. He was accessing the work of Weber, like through Trelch, well before other people could, because he was a reading German and was like looking very, very closely at all of these questions. And so, you know, both Niebuhr brothers are deeply steeped in ideas that are not even breaking on the American scene. Right. It's not until Talcott Parsons translates Weber that a lot of American academics even have access to some of these trends, right? And so, you know, that is the reason why we look at a book like The Social Sources of Denominationalism as the founding text of American sociology of religion. And the key to understanding it even further is to understand that the way that Will Herberg got to be such, you know, a powerful kind of 
thinker for his own purposes was partially by studying very closely the relationship between the Niebuhr brothers. He was not just close to Reinhold. He was also close to H. Richard. And like he basically in the book, Protestant Catholic Jew, which is sort of a, you know, try, you know, the tri-faith model, like of the mid fifties, we read that as a pluralist text, right. As a sort of affirmation of a kind of Judeo-Christian pluralism. Well, there's a theological dimension to that book that makes it more akin to the social sources of denominationalism than we know. The social sources of denominationalism was not a secular sociology book. It was a theological exercise. He was attempting to replicate what he saw happening with Trelch and you know, he, the way that Trelch was using Weber in the very thick theological context, right? And so H. Richard is trying to do that and he feels like he failed. And so then when he goes and writes the kingdom of God in America, he's like, like this, this approach will be better. This structure will get me more toward what I was trying to achieve wow. in that first. Yeah. Right? And Never, so- you know, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So for somebody like um, Herberg, like, her, you know, Herberg's book can be read as a secular text, but there's also this theological dimension to that entire project. And he's getting that from H. Richard. Right? He's very deeply influenced by H. Richard Niebuhr, not just Reinhold, you know, and so and it's because he's paying close attention to these things that they're negotiating throughout their careers. Never underestimate the power of fighting siblings. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. That's the truer words have never been spoken. They, well, they can move I, mountains. I have a, a little more of a general question with that. Uh, yeah. On page 12, I, I love this line because, like, like I said, I really like when it almost seems like and Reinhold has a tendency to keep a little bit of mystery. It's kind of hard to track down his sources sometimes when he's just like reading it initially, but he, you know, he's drawing from somewhere. Um, and, and sometimes it's hard to pin down exactly what his intention is, at least for me. Um, mm -hmm. Like, like what is, what is he trying to get at? Like, what is the, like, what is he after here? Who's he fighting? Um, who, who's he subtweeting? Who's he fighting? Like sometimes it's clear, but <laughs> sometimes it's like, and as, as I read your, uh, as I read this uh, bad kind of magic, this article, I can realize that my suspicion is definitely correct. You know, these brothers are writing to one another and nobody has any idea. I mean, very few people know that that's what's going on. Um, he says, uh, I love this line from, uh, or two sentences, I guess. He just says, what I'm trying to prove, he observed, is that man can't understand himself without the, uh, can't understand himself without the presuppositions of the Christian gospel, because all other alternatives lead to a misunderstanding of himself. And one of my questions for you is, as you engage with these two brothers, would you say that Reinhold was bolder than Richard? Um, there's a sense in which, I, to me, as I read through Reinhold, I have this like respect for him and respect for his writing, simply because it seems like he's kind of tested these ideas out. Like he's mm -hmm. actually given them their due thought. And maybe Richard kind of occupies a more conventionally orthodox Protestant perspective in some sense. Like he he plays it a little safer because like well, even that's there, a really important question. I mean, you know, and one that you certainly I mean, when you talk with the folks who are debating like Matt Anderson or Sean Casey about sort of what does it mean to be a Christian realist? Mm -hmm. Right. This question of, um, you know, is Reinhold like a realist in the sense of, well, you know, we've got to crack some eggs in order to make an omelet kind of thing. Right. And I think um you know, I think the thing that's, for me anyway, important to understand about these brothers is just that um, H. Richard is someone who has gone through the process of getting a PhD, being broken down, built back up in the sort of, you know, mm -hmm. like um, way that, that these degrees tend to do. And like, he actually also had a master's in sociology that he earned in St. Louis. Like he's a very, he's gotten a lot more degrees than Reinhold, who never um, did get a PhD. Um, and of course, the genius of Reinhold lies in the way that he's a cultural commentator who kind of shoots from the hip and works with the context and is, um, among other things, like pretty bold, right? Not 
afraid to seem judgy or you know, say to make a few enemies here and there. I mean, this is not, you know, it's a different enterprise, right? So I think it's not just the distinction between them, one as an ethicist and the other as a theologian. It's also this question of um, what it means for Reinhold to be basically a cultural commentator, a public intellectual of a different kind. Um, H. Richard tries to a certain extent um, with a book like Christ and Culture, right, to start speaking in a way that is more commentary. He does to a certain extent do that in the social sources and the kingdom of God in America. Um, but he's never really someone who gets out of writing for more academic intellectual audiences. Um, and Reinhold is sort of always doing that. And so I think that's one of the sort of things that's going on there. I mean, some of it is, I mean, literally, they like describe the differences between them as differences of temperament. Right. Right. I mean, Reinhold is a pronouncer. He's like, got a lot of ideas. He's like robust in his desire to argue and put them out there. H. Richard is um, a much more kind of thoughtful intellectual character and more likely to kind of ruminate about things and then offer a sort of reasoned, you know, conclusion after some period of thinking. I mean, they're very different in terms of their intellectual styles. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, and this is a critical part of this particular essay, is just that at the end of the day, like there was a moment where um, Reinhold was thinking about coming to Harvard and H. Richard says to him, you know, like, you know, haven't you fought the, you know, naturalists long enough, you know, the sort of boogeyman of his of moral man and immoral society, the experts, the rationalists, the pragmatists, the, you know, folks who um, think it's an easy thing to understand our problems, right? And to a certain extent, when Reinhold decides not to make the shift to Harvard and decides to stay at Union, part of what he's saying, and this is a big, big part of Richard Fox's interpretation right, is that he remains a preacher, right, that he remains someone who belongs at Union, right, that he does not want to get into sort of that bigger world of those questions, because at the end of the day, he is at some level an apologist for the Christian faith. Hmm. So the apologetical, the defensive element, right, of Weber's like position as a cultural commentator is such a big, big part of this, Right, because H. Richard has deep questions about the dangers of a defensive posture because of the way they center us, human beings, our actions, not God's actions. Healing, you're 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 preaching to preachers here. Ah. Yeah, great. <laughs> and yeah. we are we are totally on board. Love hearing that. So I, I want to get bear down on a nub here of of your article. I think that you're uh, that you're getting at. Um, I'll, I'll quote you briefly. You say H. Richard uh, characterized the relation the relation between Christianity and democracy as historically contingent rather than logically necessary. This is a fine point here. Yep. Um, historically contingent rather than logically necessary, because one might be left to conclude from some of Niebuhr's big works that democracy is a logical outgrowth of christianity or or am i mistaken yes absolutely and that's what h richard you know h richard is trying to get him to pull back from that position or to modulate that kind of implication in his work and reinhold becomes convinced that he must because h because of what herberg is doing with it Hmm. because of the effort to drag him into the conservative camp it's not representative of what he's trying to achieve in his work right and so to a certain extent there's a kind of tug of war between someone like herberg who wants to read read Niebuhr as a conservative and, you know, others that are trying to like, say, read Niebuhr as a pragmatist. I mean, that's, I I guess that's at the center of what you're writing here is like, that's the bad kind of magic, right? That 
that he is that it, it almost seems like there's a, there's a tragic element to this 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 essay you wrote um, because it almost seems like Reinhold you know for all the good things he did he also inspired this this sect of conservative <laughs> thought that comes off that it having read enough of Niebuhr now it's it's very clear that he did not want to be dragged off into that camp but it's almost like his it, at least from what you wrote it, it really seems like it was in large part to do with his um, uh, temperament like a Sean Casey put it. Uh, it's a lot of conservatives interpret Niebuhr as the head-cracking the theologian, the one who allows us to crack some heads. Yeah, but that's not at all his intention. I mean, I think the thing you want to remember, right, and this is true of political theory, of course, I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of weight that goes into what a theorist intends. There's also then questions about how their work is received. And then there's also just the pure question of, like, what can it arguably support, yeah. right? And these are all sort of separate from one another. Some of them are purely, you know, are very, very tightly tied to historical context. Others of them are completely free-floating from historical context, right? Um, and so, you know, the question of what Niebuhr meant <laughs> is separate from the question of what Niebuhr's thought wrought. Yeah. And it's also separate from the question of what it can endorse. So, right? so sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, doesn't Niebuhr like, you know, don't the neocons like use Niebuhr to like, you know, do this? And doesn't that tell us like about the core of his thought? It's like, no, not any more than like, reading a political theorist in one particular way is like a definitive answer about the meaning right. of their thought or the intention of their thought or any of that. And it's just like funny, almost. So I have a you question know? that goes along with that, but you oh. go ahead for a sec. Oh, I was just going to ask kind of a follow-up to that. It's like, I was going to, you know, and again, obviously I don't want to press you too far on this, but are you, would you be willing to share with us maybe some contemporary versions of this that you think are particularly problematic um, where people have taken Niebuhr and, and into this neocon uh, perspective and what you might, I don't know, negative or positive, probably negative. Um, yeah. Would you be willing to share about that? I mean, I could, but like, honestly, like, I think one of the things that is sort of fascinating to me, kind of endlessly actually fascinating to me is the ways that, that Niebuhr's thought like speaks to a lot of different people and like is potentially, um, you know, pushed into service of a lot of different kinds of ideas and programs. Um, and, you know, I have my own kind of understanding, partially, of course, on display here about like what I think he was trying to achieve and what I understand as the meaning of his work. Like, I, you know, and I think, I mean, like all people, I think, you know, this is, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to persuade my, my colleagues and others that they should think about Niebuhr this way too. And, you know, to some extent they do, and to some extent they have bones of contention with me about the particular kind of trajectory that I've laid out here. But, you know, I mean, in some respects, I think the question of why Niebuhr remains, I mean, this is really another way of saying, like, you know, why is it that Niebuhr remains so relevant in this present moment? Like, why is it that Niebuhr sort of continues to be pressed into the service of different kinds of positions? Um, and um, I think that a lot of that has to do with the particular corrective or the particular kind of perspective on American society and culture. And I think this is what qualifies someone, you know, to be like, you know, the way that Alexis de Tocqueville or Weber, you know, is writing about the relationship between Protestantism and capitalism. I mean, Niebuhr's in that kind of realm in the way that he is essentially talking about the dangers of a perfectionistic mindset in a newly aggressive consumer capitalist society. Right. So for me, that's the like when I see people using Niebuhr to, to reflect on that, that's what I believe is sort of the core, right, of the staying power of Niebuhr. Um, and, you know, there are definitely 
um, people who take Niebuhr and try to kind of go in different directions. But I share Sean Casey's understanding of a lot of that as being essentially um, a misunderstanding of what it means to call someone a Christian realist. I mean, the questions that you all were taking up with Matthew, Matt Anderson about, um, you know, what that even means, right? Is it's a big part of the puzzle here. And you know, they're gonna always be people like George Kennan who call Niebuhr the father of us all. But like mm-hmm. what is that? I mean, do we like what is that how I mean how much staying power does that really have? Right. You can take a statement like that and try to take it back and read that as Niebuhr's intention in his work or the true meaning of Niebuhr's work. Or you can argue that despite Niebuhr's attempts to speak to other questions, this was the you know, one group of people that he influenced the most. And so we should see this as his legacy, whether it was intended or not. I mean, there are, you know, different kinds of argument structures that support um, different ways of using Niebuhr. But do I think that's an accurate reading of Niebuhr? No. I mean, I don't share, I share Sean's, you know, skepticism about that. And, and um, I think, I think there's something here that's kind of imploring us to cast caution on any historical theology and that is a caution against the static theologian. Um, so I have a, something a little bit personal, but we we have to talk about the city of man statement because I wrote my dissertation in part providing a Niburian critique of or distinction from Lewis Mumford. Mm-hmm. And here they're writing this together about, mm-hmm. quote, the final goal of man being democracy. And this really opens my eyes to how much influx Reinhold actually was. There's this constant temptation for theologians and historians to build this static thinker in our heads who we can constantly go back to and say, Reinhold would say this, Reinhold would say that. But I think what your research reveals more than anything is a peek into the sausage factory where Niebuhr is actually this extremely organic and dynamic figure who was constantly evolving through life. And we know that, right? We know that, I guess, on some level, on some surface level uh, with everybody. But this research provides us another level of flux to his thought because we get to see where a lot of these ideas originated. And I think that I should ask you about this as well. We, We know how the right does this. It's it's easy for, I guess, like the Mark Tooleys of the world to create a static Niebuhr and say Niebuhr is the Niebuhr of what? Uh, irony of American history or Niebuhr is the Niebuhr of nature and destiny of man. Um, and then kind of edit everything else uh, about his life around that thing, around that that single work. But is there a way that the left gets Niebuhr wrong by doing this, too? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. You know, this happens all the time. I mean, there's a certain amount of violence in any sort of act of persuasion and whether it's making an argument and say, so the crux of the matter is, or so we should do X or, and so-and-so justifies this. I mean, you know, this is one of the things that I've become more sensitive to after really looking closely at H. Richard's work. I mean, you know, there's one way in which it can be kind of immobilizing. It's like when we make statements and declarative statements of various kinds or like engage ourselves in acts of persuasion, there's simplification and kind of strong arming and pressure that goes into all of that. Right. There's, you know, well, Reinhold Niebuhr says, so that's why we should do it. I mean, there's a, you know, and, and if you take that too seriously, you get to the point where you either feel like you can't say anything at all, you right. know, or, or it's kind of a turtles all the way down problem, you know, where it's like, okay, you know, if I um, claim that democracy, you know, that we need this wisdom that comes from from the Judeo-Christian traditions to temper our democracy and, and have a sense of fallibilism, 
the question then is, okay, so is that a, an ongoing process? I mean, is human sense so thoroughgoing that like we need to be having that realization every single day? Or is it the kind of thing where, you know, people say, well, you know, I've read Niebuhr. So that means that I have this like, you know, like, you know, kind of certificate that I understand what humility is and it's important in politics, right? right? If you take it seriously as a daily problematic, it's a kind of turtles all the way down. Like I can't speak a word sort of a proposition. Yes, and that's so true. It's like something like that's a certificate that you put on your wall. But yeah, like yeah. in true Niburian fashion, there is some way to form a dialectic of his life around something maybe foundational like his anthropology or something like that. But like, I'll give you an example of someone from the left. Um, and I love him. I want to tell you guys, I love Cornell West with a passion. But he says, I've heard him say this, the Niebuhr of moral man in immoral society is the Niebuhr I love. And when I hear him say that and do, and he does prop up like that, that's where he has the teeth, you know, that's where he's, he's calling people hypocrites. And then he switches to irony and kind of softens everything up. And, but I think, I think there's a danger in just like, and not hold, trying to hold together the breadth of his work and the internal struggles of all these types of things. So on the one hand, Oh, gosh, we're getting into these questions of like structuralism, post-structuralism, but like what, like, is there an author here? You know, like how much are we casting on? And it's like, it's like you said, there's turtles all the way down. But is there a way of trying to understand Niebuhr and applying him that avoids those twin traps? At the end of the day, I'm not sure there really is a way. I mean, I think, you know, this kind of careful historical work gives us, you know, some escape from the question of sort of, well, you know, which is your favorite neighbor work and why kinds of questions, you know? Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I personally think that when we look at the sort of staying power of Reinhold Niebuhr's work, I mean, it is the neighbor of moral man and immoral society that gets the sort of character. It's his critique of mm -hmm. like American society that he's developing in, the, in that period. The Christian socialist critique is the one that I think like allows his work to remain so mm -hmm. like incisive and so um, prophetic, fundamentally. I so, wonder if uh, even though I'm telling a story that puts these different works in context at the end of the day, right? I personally share that view. I mean, I think the other reason, of course, why, and this is something that I can say, you know, working with um, Jeremy Sabella, Cornel West, Robin Lovin, and, you know, the various um, advisors to that film and the interviewees, um, one of the things that I came out of that experience feeling very strongly is that we tend to think of Niebuhr as a sort of theorist of sin, mm -hmm. right? Or the human condition. But in fact, what Niebuhr is even more is a theorist of power yeah, that's true. and how it works. And so if you think of it that way, then, you know, you understand immediately like how a book like Moral Man and Immoral Society would have impacted the thought of someone like Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Right. I mean, you start seeing that it's, you know, that the that there's something um, just in profoundly important about that book. And I think we are just scratching the surface on, in particular, the reception of that book, Yeah. Um, you know, in the Black community. I mean, Niebuhr's coming out of his time in Detroit, yeah. right? Um, I think, you know, that that's a, a super, super important piece of this puzzle. Um, and, you know, so I see why but but I but I mean I think you know different people for different reasons like some people say oh the children of light and children of darkness like people who like the children of light and children of darkness tend to sort of like the pragmatist neighbor or the kind of, mm -hmm. you know, kind of neighbor who's like developing this notion of like liberal democracy 
Like um, the irony of American history, though, the thing that's so cool about that book is that it has devotees on both the left and the right. Like it's a highly yeah, book um, in a way that I think makes it fascinating. I mean, I personally, as someone who studied the Cold War, like always have felt that it was a book in which certain things, Niebuhr misunderstood certain things about the the moment he was writing in. Like, I think he miscalculated certain things about the range of his audience and the moment that he's writing in. But there's no question that some of the most beautiful statements, I mean, it's not surprising that the film ends with a quote from the Army of American history. I mean, you know, some of the most arresting, mm-hmm. um, like, I mean, and so in that sense, you've got somebody who's working at the height of their powers, but who is also at some level kind of misjudging. And so there's something really intense about that book and the yeah. way that, um, you know, the way that it inspires um, readers. I, I guess that maybe it, it'd be helpful. I think if Niebuhr were to give us instructions on how to read him, um, it might be first, find those correspondences between me and my brother, which check check that off. Um, but he might say, we should be honest about what our tendencies are when we read him. And I like this is something that Matt Anderson has been challenging me because I've typically I wrote my dissertation on like very closely with nature and destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a very Augustinian neighbor mm-hmm. and Matt Anderson has been really challenging me in that area and looking at him more as a Hebrew thinker mm-hmm. and um, and maybe using Augustine um, to uh, to express his thoughts to a Western audience. But um, so that might be the first step is understanding the of this tendency, but also, you know, to listening and ha- letting the debate play out, letting the dialogue, you know, uh, play out uh, between these neighbors um, and uh, and let the chips fall where they may through history forevermore. Yeah. Well, he break peace. I mean, this is a deeply Protestant project in that way. And I mean, if you take seriously what H. Richard is saying in the source of sources of denominationalism, then every single group that you can find in a handbook of denominations is telling you in their name, like why they believe that the group they're a part of is like no longer hewing to what the early church was about. And so yeah. we must return to that point and redefine ourselves in relation to that place. Right. And, you know, I think the other thing that's important to take away from my book on this is just that you know, Reinhold seems to almost be going out of his way to avoid using the term Judeo-Christian. Yeah. He talks about the Hebrew Christian mythos, right? He talks about the Hebraic <laughs> Christian, you know, tradition, right? But he's very seldom. In fact, the only times that I've found it are places like a Fortune article where I'm pretty sure like an editor changed it without his knowledge, you know, that kind <laughs> of thing. And some of that is about a sort of subtlety around the idolatrous nature of claiming that this is a Judeo-Christian democracy. Mm. Right? Right about not just the narrowness of that claim, but also about the potentially idolatrous nature of a claim of that kind. Hmm. Right? Because I mean, it's, yeah, it's ascribing well, a particular interest to something you're pretending is universal type of thing, maybe. Yes, like something that. you know, something along those lines, right? Something it's a spirit that you understand in some respects as historically um, encased, but also universalistic at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, right? specific- you don't want to do violence to that sort of simultaneity, right? Right. Interesting. And and specifically on this issue, one of the questions I had that relates to this is, you know, and I, because I'm always thinking kind of applicably, you know what I mean? Uh, both Cliff and I are pastors. And I, there was there was this thread that I was just trying to kind of put together that it kind of kept appearing in there, in this article, in this article. And um, it has to do with like, 
what do you think that the church in America can learn? And I'm specifically thinking of probably the more conservative uh, section of the ch of the church in America. What do you think they can learn from this uh, this struggle between these two brothers on the this issue of democracy? Because it almost seems like, and, and this is just, again, an anecdote. I don't have any data to back this up. But I almost feel like the conservative church, and I, I don't spend as much time in the more liberal wing. I just, that, that's not where I'm pastoring, so I don't. I don't find myself there, but it yeah. seems like almost like the conservative church has found its way into the very thing which Niebuhr was actually speaking against, which was to make an make an idol out of democracy. Mm -hmm. um, there's almost this sense in which um, the church, uh, the conservative church, um, wants to use and that's a part of evangelism. It's like we're going to go. That's a part of their foreign policy, and, and what they want our country to be doing is spreading uh, evangelizing democracy to the world. Um, but so, uh, yeah, I, I guess this is a pretty open-ended question, but what, what do you think the church at large could learn from this, this struggle between these two? I mean, I always tend to think of institutions in terms of the way that they're made up of people. And I think we started talking about this a little bit, um, earlier, just the way that, um, individual stories have a way of not just being kind of endlessly fascinating, um, but also kind of convicting us, right. With, mm. um, you know, a, a kind of, in a way that like other kinds of stories don't, right? It's like, as if you're meeting a friend or learning about a person that you know, except that they don't live anymore, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, in the past. And so, you know, in a way, like the way I guess I would describe it is just to say that, you know, I think the conversation between these brothers, I think all, I think that any number of people, both within the church and outside of it can benefit from taking these brothers as their conversation partners, and I think if they did, we would see a change in the way that our institutions work. And we would see, among other things, new approaches to our culture wars. Mm. And and I'm, you know, as someone who, um, I mean, I do believe at the end of the day that we are at a place where it is no longer a question of like, oh, well, if we just try to understand each other a little bit better, then we'll find some kind of tolerant middle where we can all coexist. It's way past that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What we need is solutions that have not even been thought of yet that that escape the bounds of the standoff itself. Imagine. Right. In that sense, you, you almost see that with generations where generations come in and they eventually the ones that are fighting get old enough where they start to die in large numbers. And then some other generation comes in and they don't. It's just what John Dewey said. We don't solve our problems. We just get over them. We just oh, get past yeah. them. Right? So the, the problem, the standoff itself dies. I mean, I keep waiting for a younger generation to say these culture wars that feed certain kinds of intellectual paradigms and that feed certain kinds of political paradigms and that feed a particular way of thinking about our country and what is possible in this world, right? That these things are so entrenched that it will take something like a generational shift to dislodge them. And the hope, of course, is that when that shift happens, what we end up with is something better and not something worse. Hopefully, yes. I was going to say, I mean, that's the Niebuhrian uh, cri uh, yeah, uh, qualifier. Yeah. Uh, hope, you know, it could be better, could be worse. <laughs> Go ahead, Zach. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's, it was quite interesting. You know, I was quite surprised actually by just how fixated Niebuhr was on, because I, I mean, I hadn't read about the specific issue uh, about um, the schools and, and how he was very wary of secularism simply because he thought it was going to create a vacuum. And I think to some degree, his assessment seems to be right. There is a vacuum that is created. Like people tend to gravitate towards, at least again, this is just anecdotal, but it, I mean, he is right in one sense, in the sense that there is a vacuum that is created. And that, like you guys said, there's kind of that question mark of like, okay, what, what, what comes next? Do, do you think he's right in that assessment? Do you think he was right to be afraid of those things? Or do you think that that was um, 
maybe history well, hasn't panned yeah. that out. I mean, I think he was in that moment, like more concerned about the sort of dangers of pluralism and then and thus as a result, accepting a certain kind of understanding of what secularism is. Right. I mean, secularism, you know, can either be like the religion of democracy or the beginning of as, as a place where, you know, people have more robust dialogues with one another. And like, that's the, it's, it's a lot the question of whether you see it as this kind of vacuum that's going to be filled by other things. Like that's the sort of, I mean, that's one of the things that's most interesting about the way the Niebuhr brothers are talking to one another. Like H. Richard is actually like putting a stop to the sort of slippery slope logic that says, well, you know, if we're fighting godless communism and democracy requires religion, then we're not robust enough in putting democracy, the religion in democracy, then we're on the slippery slope to totalitarianism. Our democracy will be undermined, right? Or if we, you know, remove this thing from its place keeping place, then all of these demons will rush into that space, right? And that's a particular kind of like declension or sort of slippery slope narrative. Right. And part of what H. Richard is cautioning is that narratives of that kind are potentially very far removed from what God wants for the world or thinks about the world. Or, you know, we have to be very careful about the extent to which we sort of sanctify certain kinds of stories about if we do X, then Y will happen. Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's what leads Niebuhr and Pius and Secular America. You know, just for a long, long time, he had this like thing that he always came back to secularists or you know, often better than their philosophies, which is basically kind of a, con you know, like a false consciousness narrative of these people that, you know, are actually undoing this Christian, you know, or Judeo-Christian core that sustains our democracy. You know, they, they, they actually sometimes turn out to be okay, even though their philosophies yeah. are dangerous. Right. Yeah. But then later he comes around in, in, in pious and secular America to the idea that, that secular and religious or Christian or Judeo-Christian beliefs have worked together to make democracy, which is a much more accurate historically. I mean, I think it's a much right. more accurate perspective. I, I was about to say it, a part of the, what makes this discussion difficult is the fact that it's that we haven't had many or any uh, secular states that weren't Christian. Um, I mean, we've you could argue like communism, but uh, so like pre-colonial India there was no secular state. It was all uh, caste system, it was all uh, Hinduism. Um, it wasn't until colonization and Christianization that they actually got a secular state. Uh, and studying, I guess, the way that that crops up out of there, can we can we even understand what secularism is outside of a Christian context? That's a, that's a challenge, I guess. One thing I would definitely say is just that people that want to kind of, you know, understand how different folks are thinking about the relationship between secularism and pluralism. I mean, you know, a good counterpoint is someone like a Horace Callan. I mean, you know, Callan has a very robust understanding of secularism as sort of the religion of democracy that allows democracy to flourish. But, you know, of course, the problem for Niebuhr and, and Callan in this period is that, you know, Callan is, as a result, he tends to become pretty anti-Catholic, right? He tends to think that um, that that Catholicism is, you know, standing in the way of that vision of democracy, Right. And and this was something that John McGreevy writes about with great insight and has really influenced my own work. I mean, the way he talks about what's happening, say, in the 1920s, when you have, you know, a tremendous amount of effort on the part of nativists to do things like eradicate the parochial schools. And you've got folks like John Dewey coming in and saying, no, no, that can't happen. But then by the late 40s, Dewey and others are looking at you know, the attempts to control things like birth control laws in Massachusetts, Connecticut. Right. And saying, gosh, maybe this needs to be back. You know, so there's a fair amount of consternation around 
the fact that Catholics are a very large, you know, demographic and a, yeah. and a very populous country in this period. And I think that explains some of Niebuhr's um, concern. I mean, he's really taking, I mean, John, you know, some of the, the disputants in that era were saying, oh, look, Cat, you know, Niebuhr's taking the Catholic line on this question. Well, he's partially taking a line that, that he shared in common with someone like John Bennett, right, who was concerned about secularization in the schools. But there's no question that, like, questions about this, I get to the heart of like, well, how do you understand what pluralism is? How do you understand what secularism is? I mean, to a certain extent, I think Niebuhr is doing what he did very often in those periods, which is offering a helping hand to um, other people from backgrounds, recent immigrant backgrounds, right? I mean, he's, you know, very often like in solidarity with um, Jewish thinkers or with Catholic thinkers around various kinds of questions. But I do think that that's a moment where he comes to recognize that there's this whole critique of secularism that at some level is a critique of Protestantism. Yes. Like when Colin Hayes says, you know, hey, like, you know, nationalism occurs coterminous with Protestantism, and it becomes like a slippery slope to a world in which you know, it's kind of every person their own religion, because we have, you know, each ruler, the ruler, the religion of the state is the religion of the ruler. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, a you know, sort of the ultimate slippery slope. I yeah. mean, that's sort of the ultimate slippery slope narrative, right? Yeah, it is. Um, and so, like, I think that that's one of the questions is like, are these narratives you know, where where do we see Niebuhr hewing to one or another narrative structure and then returning? I mean, you see him very often. He'll be going down a certain path and then he gets some kind of, you know, kind of pullback and he'll turn slightly. And you know, so there's a lot of tacking. And I think that's, you know, as you say, one of the most important things to take away from this article and the book that I'm writing is that these are, you know, it's easy to look at this corpus and just think, oh, you know, look how controlled this all is. It was so chaotic, like in terms of the actual production. I can't believe we would, you know, imagine anything other. Than it being, I know, isn't it? I mean, just, especially considering the ultimate message of like human fallibility, sinfulness. I mean, right, you know, absolutely, you miss it somehow. It's <laughs> amazing. Um, so I want to. I have one more question. We're starting to run low on time. I have one more question, uh, personal question, and then I have that stupid one at the end, and then we'll then we'll be done. Uh, so I want to get your thoughts on this irony, real quick, because uh, we are running out of time. Um, during this time when Reinhold takes his brother's advice and starts cautioning us against exalting a particular brand or expression of democracy, the State Department was sending a reconstructing post-war Japan translated copies of Nature and Destiny of Man, a very Christian book, and Children of Light and Children of Darkness, uh, sending them to their newly minted parliamentarians to read, to kind of, you know, get them thinking in the quote-unquote right direction. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess what uh, what might the Niebuhr's brother, you know, the brothers Niebuhr say about that? Well, I think that's hysterical for, I mean, the funny thing about it, right? Living in a soundbite culture. It's like, I think they should have chose Children of Light and Children of Darkness because it's a much more concise statement of many of the things that are in the nature and destiny of man. I mean, that's not a book that you send to anybody and expect them to read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do, unfortunately, but yeah. Well, I mean, I shouldn't. think it's a great book, but I actually think the... You know, the thing that's most interesting about it to me is the way that it that it gets sort of crunched down. I mean, he really summarizes like the main takeaways of the final, you know, in in Children of Light and Children of Darkness. And it becomes like in a weird way, like that is a sort of theological and ethical, a comprehensive, you know, his closest thing to a sort of comprehensive system. But then he crunches it down and says, and what does this all mean in the present moment? And then that's Children of Light and Children of Darkness. And there's a tremendous amount of overlap between the two. So like, I think if your your job or your goal is to like evangelize, then yes, maybe you do need something with more theological content. But if your goal is to distribute a particular way of thinking about democracy, 
Well, it, the, the irony was, it seems like it might be a little bit of both. Yeah, well, I do think it's a little bit of both, but it's, um, no, I mean, obviously, like, I mean, from the, you know, vantage point of today, like, that looks egregious. <laughs> yeah. um, um, but I um, I think that it's hard to even, like, respond to it. Like, I understand, yeah. You know? So my last question, quick series of last questions, similar to what I did with Paith. So, Helen, if you had to take a long family vacation in a hot car, no air conditioning, crammed in a station wagon all the way to Disney World, which brothers would you rather be stuck with, Niebuhr brothers or Wesley brothers? Niebuhr. Cain and Abel or Mufasa and Scar from Lion King? Cain and Abel. <laughs> the Kennedy brothers or the Jonas brothers? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, Kennedy. <laughs> the Baldwin brothers or the Property brothers? <laughs> Property. Uh, all right. The James brothers, William and Henry, Henry, or the Wright brothers? James. The brothers Karamazov or the brothers Grimm? Grimm. The Windsor brothers, Prince William and Prince Harry. Or the Gallagher brothers from Oasis, always fighting. The o what is Oasis again? I don't. They're, they're a band, Wonderwall. Oh, okay. See, there you go. Like, yeah. I bet you get this from some of your older guests. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's the question of: Do you go with the brothers you know or the brothers you don't? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's true. Okay. So that are there any of those brothers above mentioned that you would rather take the trip with? Than the Niebuhr brothers? Yeah. It's funny. I think. I mean the the only ones that really like challenge my sense of it would be the James. Yeah. They'd be pretty and, awesome. And, and they're very different. Fun. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. One of my, I mean, I think that, I think that's another kind of just fascinating relationship, you know, and um, one that's really consequential for thinking about the trajectories of American thought, you know? So, I mean, that's definitely my, although it's funny, right? Like this book, you know, imagining Judeo-Christian America is, also very much about sort of our political culture, right? Mm -hmm. About American culture. It's very much a cultural history. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, anyway, but this has been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed. Thank you so much, Dr. Elon Gaston. And you, you should check out her book. That about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our guest, Dr. Helen Gaston. And I want to thank you all our dear listeners for tuning in make sure you like and subscribe write us a good review if you're enjoying it and follow us on twitter at love thy neighbor take care everybody stay safe